And I had made all these connections over the years, you know, on both coasts. So I decided, why am I not doing this? If people are asking me and I'm spending so much time, this is something I should be doing. And so as a result, I wanted to do it the right way. So I set out to get mentored by people. From the cubicle to the lab, the studio to the war room, climbing the corporate ladder or joining a scrappy startup, experience a day in the life of the jobs you want. This is the Experience a Day in the Life podcast. We interview professionals, entrepreneurs, and recent grads about what a day is actually like on the job, hour by hour, or as we like to call it, their adiddle, spelled A-D-I-T-L, which stands for a day in the life. This podcast will inspire you to gain experience beyond the classroom and launch a career of your own. We're your hosts, Chris DeBow and Matt Poe. Welcome to part two in the two-part Shoot for the Stars series. In part one, we went through hour by hour in a day in Sherry Kane's life as a talent manager. In this episode, we'll take you through Sherry's career journey so you know what skills and experience are necessary to land a job as a talent manager. She took her communications and law background and reinvented herself later in her career, doing something she loves and is good at. Let's learn how she did it so you can too. Sherry attended Boston University and studied communications with a particular interest in political communications. Her initial career goal was to become a lobbyist, so the next step to achieve that was going to law school. So let's talk a little bit about what that process was like for her back then. Keep in mind, it was a crazy time for her. She was finishing up her bachelor's degree, she was preparing and taking the LSATs to get into law school, and she was getting married. So you pass the bar exam. I did. And I passed first try. <laughs> first Yay! try. Okay, but there are times, people, you can take the test yes. over. Yes. I know okay. people who have taken it more than once. I know people who have taken it more than twice. Yeah. <laughs> you have to wait yeah. like six months, right? You have to and take then, wait, you, I think, yeah. a period of time for sure. She attended American University, Washington College of Law in Washington, D.C., and learned pretty quickly that D.C. was not for her. Law school, by the way, was not like undergrad. They do things very differently. You get called upon. They use a Socratic method. When a teacher asks a question, they're not waiting for her hands to be raised. They're going to call on whoever they want to call. And if you haven't done the reading, then you're not prepared and you're going to, you know, have to, you're going to have to look bad basically in front of your colleagues. I'm so you, of legally blonde, <laughs> and, and I was just going to say, it, it's not di- that much different from yeah, legally blonde. Yeah, they did blonde. a good job that's, that's how, Yeah, that's how it is. They call on you. You need to know the answers and you better have read the night before. So as much as you study, there's always going to be, you know, questions that you're not sure of. So, and, and the law is evolving. So, you know, some of the questions are opinion, opinions, mm-hmm. and um, you might not have an opinion that really coincides with other people. You know, I think that as a lawyer, you're really taught to look at all sides because you're not doing yourself any favors by looking at only one side of the problem. You need to look at all the possible answers in advance in order to see what's coming at you. And um, when I got to D.C. and went to law school, I no no longer felt that I wanted to be in D.C. Everyone was an attorney. I felt like I needed, you know, more stuff going on. Just um, I, I, I think I got overwhelmed by the political process. So I ended up going back to New Jersey and working as a prosecutor. I moved back um, from D.C. to New Jersey. I had a, my first job out of law school 
was working for a clerk in New, as a clerk in New Jersey for a superior court judge in criminal law. And from there, my next years spent as an attorney, I was a prosecutor. In, Did you enjoy that? I loved it. Okay. <laughs> you know, and and it's really interesting. You basically have to learn different things about getting up in front of, you know, the jury and making your case. And it's not exactly like you see it on TV. Right. There's a lot of breaks in between um, where things have to be discussed. But it was a, a great experience. I, as a prosecutor, I got to help victims and their families feel like they've gotten some sense of um, like closure. Uh, retribution, closure, something like that. Justice. Exactly, yeah. justice. Right. So, um, you know, I, I particularly remember a victim who was dealing with sexual assault case uh, against a cousin. And it was, she was a child and, uh, and it was very, very um, stressful. And the client actually felt much better afterwards. And I, after the um, defendant got convicted, he actually sent me a letter from prison. And he literally was apologizing for everything he had done before. So there was definitely a sense of um, feeling like you've helped people. The other thing I would say that as a woman in the industry, it, as a prosecutor, I think women are treated differently still. In some ways, I found that I would get more, I would catch more bees with honey than I would if I tried to be the aggressive, strong woman in the courtroom. The nicer I was, the more the jury liked me. If I was adamant about going after the defendant or going after somebody, they kind of thought I was not such a nice lady. She was New Jersey's Middlesex County assistant prosecutor for five years when motherhood was quite literally calling her name. Basically, I had my older daughter had turned two and a half. I just had another daughter. And my older daughter told me she wanted me to stay home. And I was able to do that. And um, while being a prosecutor was very rewarding, it didn't bring in the big bucks because you're working for the government. So you have to always weigh those options. Do you, you know, want to make less money doing something you love or whether you want to make more money and maybe not love it as much? You know, there's always those factors to consider. So I, I decided to stay home with my daughter because I could. And I did that for many years. My, you know, stayed home with my daughters and, and they started acting as well. So because they started acting, I kind of needed to be there because when you have an acting child, you get an audition the night before and you have to be ready to go. Yeah, you get the the notification and they're like, show up here at this time and be prepared and memorized. And so, you know, that helped them, my being there. They couldn't do it if I wasn't there. So you were five years, six years out of law school. That's still relatively young in a career. Was it a tough decision to leave that behind or? At the time, it seemed like the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. um, I think that you feel it. You know, you know whether you should move on in the position you're in or whether you should move to another job or, or start your family, you know, and there's no right answers. I mean, no wrong answers, rather. It's um, just... Time will tell you if it's time to make a change, I think. In your head, did you believe that you would go back into law after a certain amount of time? Or were you just like, all right, I know I'm 
I'm going to be full-time mom, and then I'm going to go do something else. Well, I dabbled a little in law. While my girls were growing up, I worked as a public defender for my township, and it wasn't all that rewarding at that time for me. So I decided I just needed to concentrate on them, and then who knew what would come you know, later on, I thought I could always go back to law if I wanted to. But the reality is, is that I actually found my calling after that. Sherry was a full-time mom for around 10 years. She wanted to be there for her daughters in every way she possibly could, but especially since they were starting to express an interest in the entertainment industry. How old were your daughters when they started getting into the industry? My Older daughter was 11, and she was in a local community theater show. And somebody spotted her on stage and came up to me and said, your daughter needs to be doing this. I'm a talent manager. My husband's a talent manager. Um, and they were actually from L.A. visiting in New Jersey and, and went to see this show that my daughter was in. And as a result, my daughter, the wheel started spinning. It wasn't me. I wasn't looking for it. And she said, um, I want to do this. Send my picture out, please, to people, you know, or send them my picture. And I said, well, they're in L.A. We're in New York. I'm not going to do that. She said, so send it in New York. So I sent it in New York and she met with an agency and they signed her on the spot. And then it began. And then my second daughter got into it because she was actually dragged to an audition because I couldn't find a sitter. <laughs> and when she was dragged to the audition, she ended up with a call back. And then my older daughter's agent said, we want to see her too. The very next thing that my younger daughter auditioned for was the Despicable Me films. Wow. And she booked the role of Edith, which, you know, that's carried her. She started at age 11 and now she's 21. Wow. Wait, Edith is which one? The one in the pink hat, the tomboy. Oh, (laughs) that's so cute. That's the best daughter. (laughs) I think she's I think she's pretty special myself. <laughs> so, uh, can we talk a little more about that audition process for big films like that? What's um, that like? Well, this was a little different for her because that's a voiceover. So, right. that audition process was basically she would go to a studio like this. Um, this one happened to be within her agent's offices. They actually have a sound booth. So she would go in there and she would they would give her lines. Actually, at that time, they didn't have the real script to show us. It was all top secret. So they had her read lines from the movie Definitely Maybe. And she read the lines. And then two weeks later, they called us out to L.A. and she booked it. Wow. That's so great. It was pretty interesting. So when they told you that you had to go out to L.A., was it like you got the movie, we need to sign it in person? Or was it like were you did you have butterflies? Did you not know what was going to happen? We didn't know what was happening. First of all, I, I should tell you that. When we got the audition for my daughter, we turned it down first. And the reason why we turned it down is because I never wanted my daughters to have to sacrifice anything in the industry. It was her sixth grade camping trip she wanted to go. We wanted her to go and have that experience. So we said, sorry, she can't make this audition. We didn't know what it was. Several days later, they called her and they hadn't found the right voice in New York or L.A. She went into New York. She laid down the lines. And then two weeks later... She was, that's when we were being called out to L.A. I am still convinced to, to this day that if she had gone in when they wanted her to, it might not have been oh hers. Oh, my huh. god! So I think I, I'm also now as a talent manager, 
I'm not a kind of manager that gets stressed out if somebody can't make an audition because I always take my personal experiences. I'm really an advocate for the actor. As the parent of an actor, I know how difficult and unprofessional the business can be sometimes. And I try to bring some, you know, semblance of professionalism to it. So. What are what are some other things that you taught your daughters about the industry that you just to shape them as women, as professionals, as... I think probably the most important to, thing to know as an actor going into the industry is that you're going to be rejected way more times than, you you know, it's, it's not even comparable. And people are going to laugh at you and tell you no, or they're just not going to think that you're right for the role. I mean, Meryl Streep was told no that you'll never make it as a star. Well, there you go. And you just have to take it with a grain of salt and look at and learn from every experience and look at the audition as the job in some ways because when they you get to the point of auditioning in the room, casting directors have already gone through thousands of resumes and headshots and they've selected, you know, a, a handful of people to come in the room. So, you know, Compared to what they see, you've already done a great job in of what you're doing. Out, you know, standing yeah. out and and getting in the room. And then when you're in the room, have fun with it. You know, and and make good choices, make different choices. They don't want to hear the same thing. They don't want to hear what you think they they expect to hear. They want to hear something a little different. So when we speak, we will have all these nuances and quirks and things like that. Those go into an audition. You know, somebody might be twirling her hair in disgust as they're talking to their mom. You know, it's not being fidgety if you're doing that kind of thing and twirling your hair, if that's what you would normally do. Use those everyday experiences and add them into your audition. So it was full speed ahead for her daughters and herself in the entertainment biz. Sherry was really getting into it, and because of her law and communications background, she was picking it up pretty quickly. Sherry's relationships she's made and the career experience she's had in the industry at this point all came about because she wanted to learn more about the industry. She was a theater wrangler at her older daughter's theater group in New Jersey, and... I ended up being a chairperson. My younger daughter was in a show choir in California, and that show choir she was in was actually what uh, Glee was modeled. The TV show Glee was modeled after. So I got to see all that kind of behind the scenes stuff. And I all I think that all helped me too in dealing with kids and and dealing with parents and dealing with directors. So so when you got that experience, did you did you take on those roles as a mom, like helping out her daughter? Pretty much. But not as like a professional move, I guess. No, it really was just to help out kind of happen to help out, but I definitely gained a lot from doing it. As a wrangler for show choir, as a parent chairperson for show choir, I had to be fingerprinted. They had to check me out, all that Mm -hmm. kind of stuff. And what exactly is a wrangler? A wrangler is somebody basically who wrangles up the kids and says, (laughs) it's time to go on stage or keeps them quiet or helps them put on their last touches for their, you know, makeup and finds the costume pieces that they're missing, you know, and it's just basically to keep everything, you know, in a state of normalcy backstage yeah. while the show is going on. You're like the oil in the machine. Yeah, trying to make it all work. Exactly. So then when did you move to L.A.? I moved to L.A. My daughter's, I think it was 2013, my daughter's junior year of high school. She had just 
done the work for Despicable Me Too. My older daughter was in college, so I wasn't leaving her behind. She left me behind. (laughs) Um, And I went out there to L.A. We were told by my daughter's manager that it would be a good idea, good timing between publicity and um, meeting new casting directors out in L.A. as opposed to New York might be a good thing. So we went out there. And then when was it that you were like officially their manager? I was their manager from pretty much the time they started until I would say a year before we moved out to L.A. And that's when I I thought it would be time to add somebody to our team. What made you want to do that? The second film was coming out. It was, you know, there had been so much publicity generated from the first. She was working not only on the film, but the rides for Universal in Hollywood and in Orlando. You know, the, her character was more well-known. And the Minions were basically taking over as, like, the Mickey Mouse of Universal. Right. So I thought maybe it would be pay to have some, you know, more people on the team. Her agent was in New York, and we loved her agent, but we also wanted somebody in L.A., and her manager was L.A.-focused What's like the typical amount of people on an actor or actress's team, like generally? You know, it depends on where you are in your career. Some people might just have one agent. Some people might just have one manager. Some people might have an agent or a manager. And if you're really, you know, gotten into the business deeply, then you might have an agent, a manager, a publicist. You know, there's always coaches that people use as well. It's not like there's a set number. And again, everyone's journey is different. There obviously was a tipping point between just you being the manager for your daughter and then taking on a whole client list. Yes. I want to talk about that transition and what was going through your mind, how that all happened. So my younger daughter was graduating from high school and going off to college. Mm -hmm. And at that time, I said, my job is pretty much done here. <laughs> um, they don't want to see me or hear from me. No, I'm only kidding. But, but I thought I need to do something for me now. People over the years have always called me up and asked me about how to get your kids in the entertainment business. They would ask me various questions. I'd spend hours on the phone telling them or, you know, in person meeting with them to talk to them because they wanted help getting into the industry. And I had made all these connections over the years, you know, on both coasts. So I decided, why am I not doing this? Mm -hmm. People are asking me and I'm spending so much time. This is something I should be doing. And so as a result, I wanted to do it the right way. So I set out to get mentored by people. I would meet with a casting director. I would meet with an agent. A former manager and I'd sit and I'd ask them to tell me about the industry and what do you recommend I do and how do I get into it and then just took a chance and started sending out my resume and pitching myself basically and explaining what my experiences were with my daughters and and my communications background and my law background and how all of these could go together and be really good to make sure I was good at my job. You know, I would be a manager or an agent. I found a company that seemed to be a great fit. They allowed me to create my own roster as opposed to have them service their clients on the roster because it's it's hard to be passionate about somebody that you didn't really meet and start with. 
you can be, you know, but it's better to kind of meet people on your own and start your own roster and and really create it from the ground up. I felt like that's what I wanted to do. Some of my clients have a vast amount of experience and some of my clients are developmental, but everybody on my roster is somebody I'm passionate about. And so I decided that this was a good fit. They allowed me to create my own roster, to go back and forth from New York to L.A., have clients in both places. I have one daughter who works in New York at CNN and another daughter who works in L.A. and, and goes to school in L.A. So this way I could be, divide my time between both places. They could see that I was passionate about the work and they could see that I would be good with parents and kids because I had that background experience of being on the other side of the table. So between those things and the fact that I had a communications background and a law background, um, they were willing to take a chance. And I got more than one offer. So it was really, really nice to, at my age, to be able to really get into a job and start running. Sherry's been at the Green Room since 2015 and works with her clients to get gigs in the entertainment industry. We go into more depth about what she specifically does for her clients in part one of this series, but let's learn a little bit more about other facets of the industry. First, let's talk about the big and small fish and the talent representation pond. The Green Room is a boutique talent management company, and there are others that exist on the management and agency side of things across the country in terms of their boutique status. However, there are larger agencies in particular that exist to serve elite and A-list Hollywood and entertainment stars. Some popular ones that come to mind are WMA, ICM Partners, CAA, and so on. Sherry has advice for performers and actors just starting out who are looking for representation? I wouldn't advise somebody starting in the business or, you know, even, you know, just have has gotten their feet wet or has done a few things here and there. That's not necessarily the best place for you. And, and quite frankly, they wouldn't want you. Right. Um, so a boutique agency or a smaller agency is really much more hands-on. So that, that would be the best place for a newcomer to the industry to look for representation. It's similar to the debate we have about working at a big company versus working for a small company. At the smaller company, you'll be more hands-on, and the same goes for talent representation. Next, let's learn about how an actor can become a part of the union, the difference between a union and non-union gig, and why the distinction between the two is important. There's a few ways of getting in the union. One way is that you do a certain amount of extra roles, and then you can join the union. I don't necessarily advise extra work. I feel like sometimes it's more like being a prop, but some people do it one time to get the experience on set, to see what it feels like, but you don't really get treated the same way an actor who has a role on a show gets treated. But the other way of getting into the union is to book a number of union jobs. And even if you're not a union member, you will be submitted and pitched for jobs that are union. And they're allowed to use a non-union member. There's an exception called Taft-Hartley, and they can bring in that non-union member to do the job. And, for example, this week I had two non-union. They were, um, at this point, they were SAG eligible. They had already completed one SAG job, Screen Actors Guild job. That makes you SAG eligible. But if you're on your third one, 
that's when you really have to join the union. So we got these alarms from SAG when they tried to put through the offer, oh, it's time to join SAG. So they had to pay up their membership and join SAG. And now they won't be able to audition for non-union projects, um, which is, you know, it's kind of like a champagne problem. It's, you know, you, you, you're you celebrating because you want to be part of the union because that's where most of the legitimate great projects are working in the union. And then you get like these great little perks, you know, um, you get screeners before the Screen Actors Guild Awards and the screeners for all the movies that are coming out, you know, that year are nominated or you get to go to screening events with the stars talking about their experiences. I mean, you also have to pay a fee, which yeah. isn't great, but you're getting benefits, you know, you can get insurance, things like that from okay. from being a SAG and there's member. one unit or union? It's, yeah, it's okay. the Screen Actors Guild. Gotcha. And there's actually After Two, too, which really deals with TV more and radio. Okay. Mm-hmm. Right. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Do you have clients um, on your roster that are part of the union? All of, almost all, all of them. Of, okay. Almost all of my clients are part of the union. They didn't start out there necessarily. My younger clients who are just starting in the business, they are not. But they literally, I mean, it's cause for celebration when you have to join the union. There's no age requirement to join the union. It's just your experience no. and like how you're getting yourself out there. That's, yeah, that's no, um, it. it is really, there's no age requirement, but they, you know, being on a project that is a union project is definitely, you know, to your advantage. They're making sure all the laws are being obeyed, that kids are getting tutored properly, that they are not doing anything, putting them through like stunts that they shouldn't be put, putting them through, things like that. So, I mean, be, doing working a union project is definitely preferable. The big studios and stuff like that, all the, the, the they A-list all, actors, they're all part of the union. Yeah, they, are, they all use, all the studios use union. I mean, some projects are also non-union for some of the studios, like Nickelodeon has non-union jobs here and there. And maybe I'm just having a tough time getting my head around it. So what separates a non-union job from a union job, especially at a big network like Nickelodeon? I would imagine that they're all, they should all be union. Why would they have a non union? Um, it's a cheaper way out, I guess. Um, okay, you know, so there's I think fees along. Yeah, I mean, every time you have to follow certain rules and, and you have to pay certain fees. And, you know, I'm not saying Nickelodeon's great. They do what they need to do, even for their non union projects. So don't take it as meaning that they're not doing, they're doing the right things. But just it's just probably a less expensive route to go. And, and they can employ people who don't, aren't members of the union, that kind of thing. That wraps up part two in the Shoot for the Star series. Huge thanks to Sherry Kane for sharing her wisdom throughout this experience, A Day in the Life series. If you haven't already, be sure to listen to part one in this series to experience a day in the life of a talent manager. So they say you can't get a job without experience, but need experience to get the job. But luckily, we have quite the experience. You can join our team and experience a day in the life of the jobs you want by applying to be a student editor. Regardless of your major or amount of experience, this is the perfect stepping stone into any internship or career. Find more info and sign up at xadiddle.com slash students. That's xadittl.com slash students. 
Thanks for listening. Head over to exadiddle.com. That's X-A-D-I-T-L.com. There you can find the show notes for this series and more A Day in the Life articles. And you can get to know us and our guests more by joining our communities on social media. Follow at xadiddle on Instagram and on LinkedIn by searching for Krista Bow and Matt with one T Poe. If you learned something in this episode, please take some time to help our mission by leaving a positive rating and review of the show. Each week, we bring you a new interview series with guests from different jobs and different industries. In each series, we'll live a specific day in the life, hour by hour, and experience their career journey. So don't forget to subscribe.